let's transition to our sermon. Uh, we are starting a new sermon series on the book of James uh, today. So if you're here for the first time, uh, you're, in, uh, you're coming in at a perfect time. And so we're starting uh, this series. It's on a book of the Bible. It's called uh, the book of James or the epistle, the letter of James. And uh, I want to give a little background on that before we launch into the sermon because we need to know a little bit of this book. Where did it come from? What's it about? Who's it to? Uh, it's titled, the first line uh, says, James, a servant of God. And that's all it says uh, in terms of the identity of this person, James. So who could this James be? Uh, there is a James and John. Uh, if you remember the disciples, the sons of Zebedee, there's that James. Maybe it's him. Uh, there is James, the son of Alphaeus. He was also one of the 12 disciples. Maybe it's that James. There was uh, the father of Judas, not Judas Iscariot, but another disciple. His name was James. So there's three different Jameses in the New Testament. But there's a fourth James. And that fourth James is the half-brother of Jesus. I don't know if you knew this or not, but Jesus had brothers and a sister. Um, now, I call them half-brothers because that's what they are. If you'll remember, Jesus' mother was Mary, but his father was God. And his half-brothers, their mother was Mary and their father was Joseph. And so in Matthew 13, 55, it lists out the names of, of the brothers, the half-brothers of Jesus, and one of them is named James. And, and based on the, the text and the language uh, just about everybody, the consensus of the scholarship community is that this book was written by the half-brother of Jesus. Now what's amazing about the half-brother of Jesus is initially he did not believe in Jesus Christ. He grew up with Jesus, played with Jesus, yet did not believe in Jesus Christ initially. He became a believer after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ, remember, he died uh, was put in the tomb, rose again, and he appeared to over 500 people before he ascended to heaven. And one of the people, it looked like an, it appears to be an individual appearance as he appeared to his half-brother, James. And James became a believer and became involved uh, with the disciples. He was in the upper room right before Pentecost in Acts 1.14. He became the leader of the Jerusalem church after Peter was sent out on, uh, Peter went out on missionary journeys. He became the bishop, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. His nickname was James, the, he actually had two nicknames. One was James the Just, because he was a, a righteous individual. He was pious. He followed God's commands and walked after uh, the Lord. And because of that, they gave him the nickname James the Just. And I like this nickname even more. He was called Old Camel Knees. Wouldn't you like to be called Old Camel Knees? Uh, and the reason he was called Old Camel Knees is because he spent so much time in prayer that the, the pads of his knees became calloused from praying and kind of like the knees of, of a camel. And so he was called Old Camel Knees, this person who initially didn't believe in Jesus Christ. He was martyred according to tradition. He was actually uh, thrown uh, off the, uh, the, the roof of the temple was how he was killed. Uh, James the Just. And so James is writing this book, and it says to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. If you'll remember, the initial group of believers in Jesus Christ were Jews. And there was such a persecution that occurred in Jerusalem that these 
believers were scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And so what Paul is, uh, who Paul is writing this letter to are to these, these Christians who have been, had to flee their home, who are exiles and strangers in the world. Kind of like us, I guess. If you are a Christian, a believer, an exile and a stranger, one who's not quite home yet. This book, what's it about? The book of James is a summary of the wisdom and the teaching of James. That he's lived this life following Christ and in this uh, letter he, he writes his wisdom and the teaching that he has and he sums it up and it's essentially about how to live out your faith. There are 108 verses in the book of James and 59 of them are commands. Over half of the book, or actually that's half of the book, are commands in the imperative tense. See, James is not as much interested in teaching new theological information as opposed to getting in your business and challenging you in how you live out your Christian life. His topics are practical. They're about things like showing favoritism and how you are to speak and how to persevere in your faith. Well, what about the style of the book? It's, it's full of these short wisdom speeches and these one, uh, metaphors and, and one-liners. And we can see that James has two main influences that have, have affected his writing style, the way he writes and communicates. And the first is Jesus. He writes a lot like Jesus talks, which I guess would make sense. He grew up with Jesus had plenty of opportunities to hear Jesus speak. And so his, his language is a lot like Jesus, and he pulls from a lot of the things that Jesus said, particularly the Sermon on the Mount. He also pulls a lot from Proverbs. The style of the book has a, a Proverbs-like feel to it, that these short one-liners, these metaphors about how to live. But the summary of the book, if you were to try to summar, summarize it up, is James is calling Christians like you and me, if you are a believer, to become truly wise by living by Jesus' summary of the Bible, to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. So with that being said, I'm going to read the introduction to James, which is James 1, 1 through 8. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes of the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith without, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The word of the Lord. So, have you ever... Maybe fill in this blank. Life will get easier when? You ever said that? Life will get easier when? You know, you're young. 
maybe it's right now, life will get easier when I get a boyfriend or I get a girlfriend. And then it's life will get easier when I get rid of that boyfriend or that girlfriend. <laughs> you're in high school. You're ready to move on to the next phase. Life will get easier when I go to college. And then it's life will get easier when I get out of college and I get a job. And then life will get easier when I get that next job. And then life will get easier when I retire. And so on and so on. But the truth of the matter is that the when never comes. What comes instead often is hardship and difficulty. We seek to avoid it. We want to live lives of comfort, and yet hardship and trials, they come into our path. And sometimes it feels that there's no purpose to them whatsoever, that somebody has it against me. But James teaches us that God is at work to grow our faith when life gets hard. And when we understand that, that God is at work to grow our faith when life is hard, we can tolerate, even rejoice in the midst of trials, simply by trying, simply, uh, or simply trying to avoid them, instead of simply trying to avoid them. We must learn to embrace trials because they develop us into the kind of people that God wants us to be. So we're going to look at two things that James talks about in this passage. Number one, what's the point of trials? Why does God put trials in our path anyways? What's the purpose that they serve? And then finally, number two, the power in trials. In other words, where do we find strength when we are in the midst of trials and difficulties? So let's look at point number one, the point of trials. James in verse two says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. I appreciate that James says, count it all joy, my brothers. James may be the half-brother of Jesus, but he's no stranger to trials and difficulties. He was even martyred for his faith. And so he says, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. This word meet uh, is used only a couple times in the New Testament. It's for instance, it's used uh, in the story of the Good Samaritan. Remember when, when the original guy is walking down the street to Jericho and he meets these robbers that beat him up and take his money and all of that. That's kind of what trials are like, right? You're walking down the street minding your own business and all of a sudden you meet up with this trial, this difficulty that comes out of nowhere and knocks you on the side of the head. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now this word trials really has three different meanings. One of them is calamities and afflictions. Kind of like you walk into, your boss calls you into his office and you think that uh, you're going to get a promotion and instead you get a pink slip. Or you get a call from the doctor, it was a routine scan, but they've found something and they want you to come in. Or you get a letter from the IRS, you're being audited. These are trials, these are calamities, these are afflictions. We're all used to them. We're all, know, have dealt with them or will be dealing with them or dealing with them right now. But trials can also mean temptations. Those temptations, those things that we experience on a daily basis, that, that welling up within us to say something about that particular person, to gossip, that temptation, that's a trial. That, 
temptation to have that second look when that attractive female or male walks by. That temptation is a trial. The thoughts that we have in our heads, often those temptations, they're also trials. Finally, the third uh, uh, definition, or not definition, but explanation, is their tests. And notice he says, when you meet trials of various kinds, there's a variety of different tests and trials that we experience. Sometimes they're huge. Sometimes they're just small nuisances. But it's when you meet trials of various kinds. It's not if. You're going to experience them. You're going to experience them today. And Paul commands us, excuse me, James commands us in this situation to count it all joy. It's a command. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. It tells us that we have an option, don't we? If he commands us, we can choose to do something else other than count it all joy. We can give way uh, to temptation, that temptation. We can respond with anxiety or fear. But James says, count it all joy. I mean, it seems a little bit counterintuitive, doesn't it? When you experience trials, to count it all joy. I mean, nobody wakes up in the morning and says, God, please send me the hardest day of my life today. That's what I'm looking forward to. Oh, James isn't saying that we should go out looking for trials, but rather that we can take joy in trials. And why can we take joy, count it joy in trials? Verse 3 and 4 give us the answer. Verse 3, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That these trials are tests. That God is testing us. He's using testing to uh, test our faith in order to produce steadfastness. Now we all know what faith is, right? It's the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. It's belief in something that we cannot see, that we cannot touch, but that we know it's there and are certain that it's there. But this testing of our faith produces steadfastness. And what is steadfastness? It's exactly what it sounds like. It's patiently being able to endure whatever comes without distress to influence one's convictions. It's being able to stand against whatever it is that is coming at you and not falling apart, not lo losing a sense of who you are and what you believe. But the challenge is we don't really know how much we believe in the things that we don't see until they're tested, right? See, the only way to be sure and certain of what you don't see or what you hope for is to be tested in your faith here in the world where you can see. This process of testing us in this real world produces a steadfastness of our faith that we become stronger, more convinced, more believing in the things that we cannot see. Notice what he says, for you know. In other words, we know this. We know this is true, that the testing of our faith 
produces steadfastness. True faith is never born on the sunny days of our lives. It's born in the dark days and strengthened in the dark days. All the roots grow deeper when it's dry. James goes on, and let steadfastness have its full effect. In other words, let your convictions becoming more and more mature have its full effect so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Steadfastness, when our faith is tested and tried and comes through on the other side and refined, there will be perfection and completeness in our lives. What does that mean? Does it mean that we will get to the point when we don't sin anymore, when we don't doubt? No, James isn't saying that. In fact, in chapter 3, verse 2, he says that we all stumble in many ways. We're humans. We're flawed. We're tempted to doubt. We're tempted to despair. But there is a process that happens in which God is maturing us into someone that we're not with the goal that we will ultimately reach maturity in our faith. I love this definition of maturity of Ephesians 4.13 that talks about us becoming mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That ultimately this is what this is all about. God is changing and shaping us to resemble Jesus Christ. If we are made in the image of God, Jesus is the image of God. There's someone that he's, God is shaping us into and he's using trials and tests in order to do that so that we would ultimately one day look and act like Jesus Christ. This word testing, by the way, is a word that silversmiths would use back in this day. And the way a silversmith would refine his silvers, he would pour a bunch of that silver into a, a cauldron, and he would begin to heat that cauldron. And as he heated that cauldron, the impurities in the silver would rise to the top. That's called the dross, we're familiar with that, and then he'd scrape away the dross. And what he would do is he would look down into the cauldron, and he would look and to see how clear he could see his face. And then he would cool it, and then he would heat it again, and he would heat it hotter until that dross would come up, and then he'd peel all the dross. And when he finally could see a perfect reflection of his face, he would say that the silver had been tested. See, that's what God is doing in your and my life. He wants to refine us of the impurities in our hearts. And so he gives us tests and trials so that the dross would come to the top, so that it would be separated from us. Because ultimately, God wants to look in our faces and to see the face of Jesus Christ. It's a process. It hurts. But this is why we can take joy in trials. See, if you know who is sending the trials and why he's sending them, it makes all the difference in your difficulties. Joy in trials comes from knowing that what God is up to and knowing who he is. 
So joy depends on perspective. And our joy depends on what we think about God. Nothing will test your faith and show you what you truly believe like difficulty. If I want to know what I really believe about the Bible and about God, let something difficult happen because God is taking away the dross. Perhaps you're going through a hard time right now. Did you just barely make it here today? Have you thought to yourself, maybe more than once today, maybe more than once in the past few weeks or months, is this really worth it? Is it really worth coming to worship, to believe these things, to hear these things? I want you to know that you're not alone. The trials are a sign that you are His. That you're walking in the same path that His Son, Jesus Christ, walked in. For Jesus faced trials and temptations too. Manifold, uh, manifold more than we have. God has a plan in your life. So take joy, be patient, and hold on because the perfection is on the other side of the trial. Well, that's my first point, the purpose of trials. Now let's talk about the power in trials. James continues on in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So how do we get this joy in the midst of trials? Do we try really hard? Do we just grit our teeth and grin and bear it? No, we pray and we look to God in the midst of trials. That's what he says, right? If any of you lacks wisdom, wisdom, the Greek word Sophia, means correct understanding. If you're lacking a correct understanding of what it is that you're dealing with and what it is that you're going through, it says, James says, to let him ask God. So often that's what we don't do. Instead, we try to figure it out ourselves. We buckle down. We look at the resources that we have and we compute and we calculate and we try to figure out how do I deal with this trial on my own resources? But trials push us to realize that we don't understand, that we don't have the answers, that we need to look outside of ourselves for correct understanding. And so trials force us to look outside of ourselves. Let him or her ask God. See, this is how we're being conformed to Jesus Christ, that we're taking our eyes off of ourselves and off of the things of this world, and we're looking up to God and seeking answers and understanding from Him. And notice what God's response is when we do ask Him, who gives generously to all without reproach. When we ask for wisdom and understanding, God gives generously to all without approach, reproach. The word generously means abundantly. It means liberally. It means God is active in intervening and in, in stepping in. He's not stingy about being a part of your situation when you invite him into it. 
He gives us himself, first of all. He says, I am with you. And he assures us that you're not alone. When we ask for wisdom, he gives generously without reproach. I love that. He doesn't fault you when you bring your doubts, when you bring your complaints. He doesn't say, what's the matter with you? Can't you figure this out on your own? Maybe we experienced some of that from our parents when we were growing up. That's not God who gives generously without reproach. He delights in us approaching him, seeking correct understanding for what we're dealing with. And it will be given to him. Notice that. It will be given to him. And what is that it? It is wisdom. A correct understanding. Now he doesn't always tell me why that particular trial is occurring. No, he's much better than that. He tells me what I need to know in order to trust him better. When I don't understand what's going on. He gives me what I need to know in order to endure, in order to persevere, in order to get to know him better. See, that's how we grow. By saying and knowing, I don't have all the answers, but he does. I don't know the future, but he does. I don't even understand this situation, but he does. And he's with me. You don't get perseverance by trying harder, but by asking, depending, and trusting. Jesus dealt with this himself, did he not? Praying in the garden. Oh God, before he was to be crucified, if, if you're willing, take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. In other words, I trust you, God, with my future. I know that you have the best for me. And God strengthened him. James gives this caveat, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Now it seems to say he's saying there's no doubt allowed whatsoever. Carlos, you just said to bring your doubts and your difficulties and your questions. No, doubt does not disqualify. Think of the people in the Bible. What about Thomas? Remember Thomas who brought his questions, and lest I see his hands and be able to see his side and touch his side, I will not believe. God didn't disqualify Thomas. What about Abraham? Abraham, you will bear a son, and he will be the father of many nations. And no child came. And Abraham did all of this uh, stuff in order to try to make it come true. And yet in the end, Abraham is considered a person of faith. No, doubt does not disqualify. What James is talking about, who James is talking about, is an unstable, double-minded person. In other words, one who doesn't really depend on God. He's just throwing up a prayer kind of like a Hail Mary. Kind of like maybe this thing will stick or not. Like it's a superstition. I'm just going to go ahead and do that. But I don't really hope. I don't really trust. I don't really believe. No, instead, but let him ask in faith. In other words, this is 
the trajectory of a person whose heart is arcing toward God. Someone who wants to follow God and wants to depend on Him. Who says, I do believe God. Help my unbelief. Who says to God, I don't have it all figured out, but I trust you. And I believe what you say over how I feel. I guess the point I'm trying to make, my friends, is that we're not alone. God is with us. And God has gone through trials and temptations before us. Jesus has walked in each one of our shoes. And he knows exactly what it's like to face trials. He knows exactly what it's like to face difficulties. And to try to live with no other agenda every day except doing the will of the Father, which he did. He always knows what you're going through, and he's always been there. There's no other God like him. There's no other idol that you and I can look to who can say to us, I've been there too. No, God gives us power in trials because he never leaves us and he walks through them with us. You know, one of my favorite stories of the Bible is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember those guys on the flannel graph, you know, when you were kids and, and they were in Babylon and the, and the king gave the edict, you know, you needed to, to worship, the, you know, this particular thing and they said, we're not going to do it. And so he throws them in the fire and in fact, before they go into the fire, they say, look, God has the power to save us. But even if he does save us, doesn't save us, we want you to know that we will not worship your golden statue. And so they throw these guys into the fire. And then, as they're not being burned up, and as the king is watching, he sort of steps forward in amazement because he says, I see another one in the fire with them. God was there in the fire, watching over them, protecting them, like he does for us in the midst of trials and temptations. There's power that can be found in the midst of your trial and your temptation because it's in it that you discover the one who is greater than the trial. What's the trial that you're going through right now? Maybe none. But a lot of us are. A lot of us are experiencing difficulties. A lot of us are experiencing things that we don't have answers for. The power that we have in trials is that we know that we're not alone. That God has gone through them before and that he is with you. Do you need wisdom, a correct understanding, a perspective that's right to deal with the challenge that you're facing? Ask God. Take your eyes off of yourself and look to God and ask for help and the wisdom to make it through. Go ahead and bring your doubts your unbelief, even your despair, but bring it to God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given. You are not forgotten and like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, you will discover 
in time that there is another in the fire. And you will make it to the other side stronger, looking more and more like Jesus, which is the point. God gives us a purpose in trial. And he gives us power in trial. So let us count it all joy. For God is with us. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you never leave us or forsake us. That you have come near in the person of Jesus Christ. And that you live in us through your Holy Spirit. God, I know that there are many of us who are experiencing trials and are bewildered, questioning, wondering where you are. But you say to ask, and you give generously, without finding fault, and it will be given. So God, I pray that you would give us the faith to persevere in the midst of trials, to take our eyes off of ourselves and the situation, and to put them on you, and to look to you for hope and help, for surely you will come to our aid and our rescue because that's the kind of God that you are. We thank you and we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.